Um, we're, as John said, we're, we're back in a series we started last, uh, last fall, a series uh, from the book of Colossians called Jesus Plus. And uh, the book of Colossians is, is a letter from, from Paul and, and his, his disciple Timothy to the church in the city of Colossae uh, in the first century. And we call the series Jesus Plus um, because a big theme of this of this letter is, uh, is that Jesus plus anything equals, as John said in the first talk, equals zero. Jesus plus anything equals zero. And John acknowledged in, in opening the series that that claim, Jesus plus anything equals zero, uh, sounds kind of ridiculous to us today, especially in, in the culture we live in. We're surrounded by so many different beliefs, uh, religious beliefs and, and systems of belief. And how could we point to just one of them and say that it's the only way? Uh, isn't that incredibly narrow-minded? How could we do that? Um, well, the fact is that the series we're in, Jesus Plus, is, is actually more narrow than saying that Christianity is the only uh, religion that, that, that is, is viable. It's more narrow than that because it doesn't focus on a certain religion. It focuses on a certain person. It focuses on one man, Jesus Christ. Theologians call this the scandal of particularity. That a particular man who lived in a particular time and place and spoke a particular language and interacted with particular people, that that man could be the only way for people to come to God. And I was, I was reminded recently, uh, I was hearing a message by a man named Daryl Johnson, and he, he just reminded this, me of this idea that the scandal of particularity, it doesn't center around Christianity. It's not saying, yeah, we're the only religion. It's much narrower than that. It's around one man. It's around Jesus Christ. And Paul's letter to the Colossians declares this scandal It proclaims that this particular man is no mere man. He's the one through whom all things were created and all things reconciled to God, like we were singing in that first song today. He's the Lord over any other power that exists on the earth and in the heavens. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 to 10 says, In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness in him. In him. You have come to fullness. You have come to fullness in him. If you've come to Christ, you've come to fullness. And fullness can't get any fuller. (laughs) And so that leads to the equation, Jesus plus anything equals zero. With Jesus, addition is subtraction. It's like the game of snakes and ladders when, when you, know, you have to roll the exact amount uh, to get on the last square. And if you roll too high, you don't just keep going into the you know, infinity zone. You bounce back. And that's what it's like when we try to add things to Jesus. It bounces back. It, it doesn't add to the fullness. We've come to fullness in him. And when, anything we try to add is subtraction. Anything. And, and that includes a lot of the religious stuff we add on. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn with me 
to the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verse 16 to 23. I forgot my Bible this morning, so I will be using my Bible app. Um, Yeah, that happened. Chapter 2, starting in verse 16, and we'll read through verses 23. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They've lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. And that's where we'll stop for today. Don't let anyone judge you. I thought since the series uh, title is, is a little bit culturally offensive, I'd choose a title for today's message that is very, you know, culturally applauded. Don't let anyone judge you. There you go. And some of you, when you hear that, you might, you might want to give an amen. And, and some of you will be more cautious and will be judging me very closely from now on. But I'm not going to let you. <laughs> But if I was, to be honest, if I was not up here, if I was, if I was sitting in, in one of the chairs listening, I would probably more likely be in that second category when I, hear, when I heard that title. Don't let anyone judge you. And this has been, this has been a good one for me to kind of wrestle through. Uh, but, but this is the message. Um, but because I, I, I just, I get, I get a little bit tired sometimes of, of this message because we, we do hear it a lot, don't we? Don't let anyone judge you. Um, I just feel like, we need to relax a little bit. We need, to, we need to get over ourselves. We need to chill out. And, and I think in some ways that's true. Because um, the popular idea behind this don't let anyone judge you is, is often that, that you as an individual basically have a right to be almost whoever you want to be. And you shouldn't let anyone judge you for that. So I found some quotes from the internet and I might have to move so I can read them. Uh, these are just, you know... Forgive any punctuation mistakes because these are just straight, straight off the internet. Uh, don't let anyone judge you. You're fine just the way you are. You're allowed to be whatever you want to be. It's a nice picture, Mac. Girls, this is for girls. Uh, girls, don't let anyone judge you by your looks or by the way you dress. Be who you are and don't think you have to change yourself. There you go. Live life the way that makes you happy. No one's stopping you. They can judge you, but they can't stop you. Only you can stop you. Don't let their judgmental opinions make you stop yourself from doing what makes you happy. This is the most bitter one. (laughs) Don't judge me. You can't handle half of what I've dealt with. There's a reason I do the things I do. There's a reason I am who I am. Man, you read some of those and you feel the animosity, hey? And, uh, you know, behind some of these quotes, there's, there's... there's obviously an egocentricity, right? They're, it's all self-centered. 
and there's a refusal to listen to anyone else. And in the end, there's, there's actually just kind of like a lot of arrogance. But there's also a seed of goodness. There is. These statements, this sentiment, don't let anyone judge you. It says that there are some things that are worth standing up for. And there's some things we shouldn't back down from. And there's, there's some things about ourselves even that we shouldn't let other people condemn and stomp over. It says that our identity doesn't deserve to be pushed around by other people's opinion. And this is exactly what Paul says to the Colossians. But unlike some of the online quotes, he gives an absolutely solid foundation for our identity. Jesus Christ, the risen man, who is Lord over every power that exists. We've died with him to the ways of this world, and we are made alive with him in his resurrection. In him we have come to fullness. So in light of this identity in Christ, Paul writes to the Colossians that they must not let anyone judge them by merely human or worldly religious standards. So the big idea for today is we can be confident enough in who Christ is and in who we are in Christ to reject the religious obligations that other people try to put on us. It's a hard one. Because there, there is this reaction against this, don't let anyone judge you. But it's here. It's what Paul's preaching. And it's what we're going to look at today. We can be confident enough in who Christ is and in who we are in Christ to reject the religious obligations that other people try to put on us. So, you read this passage and right away you're like, something's going on in Colossae. And uh, Curtis is a fellow student of mine. He's here. Uh, we took a test last week and we had to... We had to answer a question about the Colossian heresy, and neither of us are sure if we got it right. Uh, I'm still not really sure. I told them I'd be sure by today, but I, I don't know. Um, but there's this idea of the Colossian heresy. Uh, theologians, scholars have looked at this and said, something's going on in Colossae that Paul's writing to address. And we can see this, and we're not going to figure out everything that's, that was going on um, today, because there's lots of discussion around it. But I think there's a few things we can look at, so let's look at them. Um, a few influences. First of all, there's obviously a Jewish influence uh, in, in this city of Colossae and in some of these things that, that Paul, Paul's addressing. There's talk of Sabbaths and, and new moons, which are both Jewish observances, and also other feast days. And then there's, there's also the look at um, uh, abstaining from certain foods, and, and that could very well be, be Jewish food laws, kosher laws as well. So there's, there's Jewish influence, but it's obviously not totally Jewish. There's some stuff that's it seems to be coming from, from other places, too. Um, there's this talk of the elemental spirits, or I don't know if you caught that. It's like, what elemental? What, what is that? Uh, older translations sometimes just uh, translate it as, as like rudiments. It's like the basic building blocks of this world, but, but some sort of powers, forces behind these things. Um, there's the worship of angels, which is obviously not just a Jewish thing because... You don't worship angels, but the, these people are doing that. There's some f- form of uh, a humility or, or uh, harsh treatment of the body Paul talks about later. Um, some part, maybe, maybe some form of asceticism where, where you're, you're hurting yourself in order to have a, a more spiritual experience. Um, and then there's this, this talk of visions, uh, some, some sort of visions. So there's, there's some sort of like mix of religious stuff 
going around. And it seems to be grabbing from, from Judaism, and it seems to also uh, be grabbing from, from some other stuff that's, that's going around in Colossae. Um, and I think we can kind of fit the things into three categories. And so I'm going to show you this really cool-looking slide. Oh, it doesn't look as cool. Never mind. Uh, three categories. <laughs> Uh, things of observance, you know, you must observe the Sabbath. You must observe these other holy days. Uh, there's things of abstinence, abstaining, not just sexual abstinence, but abstaining from some sort of thing. Uh, in, in here, it looks like abstaining from, from certain foods and certain, certain drink. Um, and then experience. There's this, this talk of, of worshiping angels and of having visions and of having, uh, yeah, this, this asceticism where you're having these, these intense spiritual experiences. So all these things, observance, abstinence, and experience, I think they can all kind of come together under the umbrella of, of religion, right? All of these things, kind of, they, we see them in, in religious observance, a religious practice. So we'll call them religion as, as a cover term. People are pointing to, to certain religious observances or experiences or abstinences as being fundamental to the Christian life. They're making the Colossians feel like they're doing something wrong or they're missing out on something really important by not participating in the worship of angels or harsh treatment of the body or by failing to observe these Jewish food laws, holy days, things like that. They're trying to judge the Colossian Christians or trying to disqualify them by saying, you need to do these things or, or you're not legit. And Paul says, don't let them. Don't let them judge you by these religious things. So why? The thing Paul points to again and again uh, through this passage is because of the origin and the origin of where these things come, come from. So at best, he says they're a shadow. And specifically, he seems to, to, to point to the, the Jewish observances. He says, these were a shadow of the things to come. He says, but, but even those things, don't let anyone judge you by them because... You're not in the shadow anymore. You've actually come to the reality. You've come to Christ. You've come to the substance. You've come, as we said, to fullness. So even these things which, which were a shadow, don't let anyone judge you by them because you have come to fullness. And then the, the origin that Paul points to mostly throughout this passage, so he says he uses the language of shadow in the, in the one part, but then mostly uh, throughout the passage and through the letter is that the origin of these things is, is human and earthly. And again, in earthly you have that language of the basic spiritual elements of this world or the basic rudiments, the basic building blocks of this world. So uh, earlier in Colossians, in, uh, in the same chapter, chapter 2, verse 8, uh, Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces or rudiments of this world rather than on Christ. And then within the passage we just, we, we're looking at today, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have, uh, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. So you see this kind of almost identification of, of these kind of basic Root, uh, powers behind the world and then with things that are merely human. And so they're human and they're earthly. And that, to Paul, seems to be 
almost the same thing. And this charge of religion being just a merely human thing, just something that, that people make up, it's, uh, we've heard it before, hey? You, you hear people say this. Yeah, this, this quote is from, from Sigmund Freud. Uh, you might have heard of him. Kind of a big deal. He says, When the growing individual finds that he's destined to remain a child forever, that he can never do without pr- protection against strange superior powers, he lends those powers the features belonging to the figure of his father, and he creates for himself the gods whom he dreads, whom he seeks to propitiate, and whom he nevertheless entrusts with his own protection. God's just, we have these needs, so we make up a God. It's just man-made. Karl Marx says a similar thing. Man makes religion. Religion does not make man. But it's not just atheists who point out that religion can come from a human source. God says it, so, you know, let's listen to him. In the book of Isaiah, uh, I'm going to read this for, for, it's a bit of a lengthy passage, but we're going to read through it, and it's small because it's lengthy. Um, it says, Is there any God besides me? There is no other rock. I know not one. All who make idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know, and so they will be put to shame. Who would fashion a god or cast an image that can do no good? Look, all its devotees shall be put to shame. The artisans, too, are merely human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand up. They shall be terrified. They shall all be put to shame. The ironsmith fashions it and works it over the coals, shaping it with hammers and forging it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line marks it out with a stylus, fashions it with planes, and marks it with a compass. He makes it in human form with human beauty to be set up in a shrine. He cuts down cedars or chooses a home tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it can be used as fuel. Part of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bakes bread. Then he makes a god and worships it, makes it a carved image and bows down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he roasts meat, eats it, and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm, I can feel the fire. The rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, bows down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Save me, for you are my god. They do not know, nor do they comprehend, for their eyes are shut so that they cannot see, and their minds as well so they, they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. Now, shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded mind has led him astray, and he cannot save himself, or say, Is not this thing in my right hand a fraud? Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have swept away your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have returned to you, for I have redeemed you. So God, too, has things to say about human-made religion. But the difference between him and the atheists, well, maybe it's obvious he's not atheist, is that he points to himself as the true God, as opposed to the idols. So he does point out, yeah, there's this, there's this self-made religion out there, but there's also a true God. 
but he, he too condemns much religion as being man-made. And in Colossians, Paul warns the believers that the insistence on religious observation, abstinence, and experience that they're hearing has a human or worldly origin. Paul has a word for human-made religion, and uh, a lot of scholars think he actually made it up. Cool, eh? So I thought we should say it. <sighs> I will try to say it. Ethelothraskeia. I believe that's how the guy I listened to said it. So, and it's, it's a kind of a joining of two words, threskeia, which is like worship or religion, and ethela, which, is, which has to do with the will. And older, older translations have it as will worship. The New Revised Standard Version has self-imposed piety. The New International Version, self-imposed worship. And the English Standard Version has self-made religion. And it's basically religious stuff that you just make up. God didn't command it, but now you're making a big deal of it. And the problem with this kind of religion is its origin. It doesn't come from God. It comes from humans and from the things of the world. So, is this relevant to us? I hope so. (laughs) Well, first of all, or how is it it relevant to us? Um, First, it's obvious that we, we shouldn't make up our own religious demands, right? For observance, abstinence. And experience, but, but that's actually not Paul's point in, in this portion of the letter. His point is that we shouldn't let other people judge us based on these religious demands. Why not? What's the problem? Um, this, I read, let no one disqualify, the first one is, no, let, don't let anyone judge you, and then it says, don't let anyone disqualify you. Um, in some older translations, in the, in the American Standard Version, that's translated, let no man rob you of your prize. And the picture is uh, of a sporting judge, who, who rules against you in a game, and he takes away your prize. Oh, you lost. You don't get the prize. And there's a sense in which when we come under other people's human-made religious judgments, that it can really bring a real loss to our faith. So I've written down a few examples, and there are many more, and I'm sure you can think of some. Uh, that, are, that are from your life. But I'm going to share a few that I thought of. Some of them are, are personal. Some are just thoughts. So, and I'm going to go again through observance, uh, abstinence, and experience. So, in the category of observance, um, maybe one thing is that people insist that you subscribe to a certain man-made system of understanding God. Uh, I, I've, I've struggled with this um, when I've had these, these, these uh, you know, you need to observe this system, and, and systems are helpful, but when it becomes a religious thing, then it, it's, it's, been, it's been a struggle to, to say, well, God says this about himself clearly in the word, and that's caused some inner, inner conflict within me, confusion about who God is. Maybe there's, there's other things, um, in, insistences that, or, or maybe you just kind of feel this, like, yeah, I, whenever there's a prayer time, like, I need, to, I need to be one who, who's going to pray out loud, right? And it's like, I, this, is, this is a religious thing. Like, I, I, just, I need, need to do this. But if we feel this as like a religious demand, like, oh, I need to do this, that, that can maybe, and I, I, think, I think this has been the true for me sometimes, that can maybe lessen or diminish our actual relationship with talking with God. If we just feel like, yeah, I need to do this whenever there's a time. Maybe it's always be in church on Sundays, right? I've, I've heard 
Someone say, like, you need to be in church on Sunday unless, you know, you know I don't know, if, you're, if your kid has, like, broken his leg, then maybe it's fine. But otherwise, you need to be there. If we feel this is, like, a, as a religious obligation, we need to observe this thing. Maybe that can give us the wrong idea about what church is. Now, do I think it's really important for us to be together in church? Yes, I do. But it comes from a different place, not just a man-made religious thing. Second category, abstinence. Um, maybe it's, you know, don't, don't drink any alcohol. Don't, or maybe it's even, like, don't go in a pub. Don't go in that place. That's, that's evil, and you should not go there. Or maybe it's, don't go to other churches. Like, if, if that church has, has, like, this denomination on it, you, don't, you shouldn't enter that place. <laughs> Stay away. Maybe it's, don't read certain books. Ooh, that author, he's, ooh, you don't, you don't want to read him, you know? <laughs> um, and, and some of these things actually might be helpful for some Christians some of the time, to be like, oh, I, don't, I shouldn't go in pubs right now, or I shouldn't read this book right now. And, and that's true. But to dogmatically institute them uh, for all Christians, it can, it can often uh, limit Christians who are, who are called to some of these places, called to do some of these things. And, uh, and that can, again, cause this confusion, this conflict of conscience. And the last one, uh, last category is experience. This idea of you need to have this experience uh, to, to really be close to God or whatever it is. Uh, it may sound funny, uh, but, but one for my li- in my life has actually been having the experience of, of healing, uh, of supernatural healing. Um, and, yeah, so in, in, in a few weeks, I'm, I'm scheduled to go in for surgery and have my colon removed. And I've had this, this disease for, for like 15 years now. And, uh, and I know God heals, and I've seen him heal lots of people. And I know he, he could heal me before the surgery. Um, but apart from that, I've felt in, through these years at times this idea of like, if I don't have, because I haven't had this experience of supernatural healing, I'm somehow removed my, from God. I'm somehow distanced in relationship from God. It's not true. And the same thing uh, could be, could be uh, experienced by, in lots of other things. Like maybe it's, it's speaking in tongues. You know, if you need to have this experience or else you're not really close to God or prophesying. And what does this lead to? It leads us to confusion again about who God is. It leads us to distance. Maybe it leads us to faking it. It leads us to feeling inadequate. Needlessly. Needlessly. It gets exhausting trying to follow all these religious demands. It's actually impossible and it's equally impossible to follow them and to follow Christ confidently. I, I call them substitute moralities. We're really only called to, to one thing, and that's following Christ. We can't do everything. We can't follow everyone's religion. And when we try to follow these things and follow Christ, both sides get a less than stellar job. And it gets confusing. We waver back and forth between one side and the other and this side and that side and our consciences become confused and our faith is really damaged. I know. There are many, many human-made religious demands in the church 
And many of them actually oppose each other, which is kind of funny. Do theology. Don't do theology. Lift your hands in worship. Don't lift your hands in worship. We can't follow them all and we're not called to. What we're called to do is to follow Christ and refuse to accept or be weighed down by other people's religious judgments. That's what Paul writes to the Colossians. I love this. Later in the letter, Paul, Paul describes the prayer of Epaphras, uh, who was the original church planter in Colossae. He, he describes his prayer of Colossians. And this is what he prays, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. And this is my prayer for all of us today, definitely including myself. The mature Christian is fully assured and able to know and stand confidently in the will of God. This Christian is not coming under all sorts of religious judgments. Paul writes uh, again about the mature church in, in, in another book, another letter he writes to the Ephesians. He writes that we, we keep on building each other up, and this is the quote, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Mature Christians aren't blown around by the religious judgments of people. They know who they are in Christ. There's a solidity and a certainty in a mature group of Christians. They know who they are in Christ and they don't let themselves be judged or disqualified by man-made religion. And that's the big idea, or the big idea for today is that, that we can become such a group of Christians. Again, I'll put it up there again. We, we can be confident enough in who Christ is and in who we are in Christ to reject the religious obligations that other people try to put on us. One of the things I love about this group of people is, um, is how laid back we all are. At least when I see you, we're all pretty laid back. I actually love it. People often ask me uh, about my church and like what denomination it is. And I'll say, Mennonite, we're Mennonite brethren. I don't know if you knew that. But they'll ask me, and I'll say, yeah, Mennonite brethren. And, um, and, then they'll, and then, you know, Mennonite brethren, maybe it's a pretty broad, you know, denomination. So they'll ask some, for some more distinctives about what we believe and practice. And I, and I always kind of have to chuckle because we're, because we're a pretty mixed bunch. <laughs> and I love that we could come together every Sunday and, and, and really love one another and really worship Jesus together. It's the best. And I know there's a lot of different distinctive beliefs and practices represented in this room, and I love that we're here, not judging each other by our own self-made religion, but recognizing that there's something bigger that unites us. I love that. I want to see that grow in the whole church in Maple Ridge, in BC, in the world. But by virtue of the same laid-back character of this group of people, I wonder if perhaps sometimes we can find it hard to take a stand against the self-made religion of others. But when we don't stand up against self-made religion, it gains ground in our conscience and we get tossed around. I, I can really just speak for myself at the end of the day, but uh, I know that I at least can feel it in my conscience when other people make me feel like I ought or ought not to do certain things that they've decided. It's so easy to fall for these self-made religions because, like Paul said, they have the appearance of wisdom. They look good. And, and, and I don't want to just push wisdom aside. No, I want to I hear it out for sure. 
speaking of the commands not to handle the taste and touch specifically, Paul writes, they look wise, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Self-made religion doesn't lead to what it tries to accomplish. It's useless. And we've come to fullness in Christ. We've come to effectiveness in Christ. So let's follow him with all our strength and give none of our strength to following or being tossed around by self-made religion. I mentioned at the beginning uh, of this talk that the scandal of particularity is not centered on a religion, but on a person. And seeing as so much of religion can be based off of human ideas, that's a relief. In the midst of Paul's contention that the Colossians refuse the judgments and disqualifications of man-made religion, he says that those who promulgate such religion have lost connection with the head. So when we ask ourselves, how do we do this? The first answer is, stay connected to the head. It's really all about a certain man, the Son of God. In him we've come to fullness. It's really the, the first and most important thing we need to do. Gain confidence in Christ. Or, sorry, stay, stay connected to Christ. Uh, this text we're reading today is obviously a part of a, a bigger text, a whole letter. And um, so I'm just going to read, uh, to give some context, the, the, the passages immediately before and immediately after. Uh, because I think they, they help us see this thing. We've come to fullness in Christ and how important that is to this discussion. So, uh, Colossians 2, 13 to 15. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you. Our passage. And then afterwards, Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul talks about this like it's an objective reality. Like we actually have come to fullness in Christ. Like we've actually died and are alive in Christ. We've been raised with him. That's the point. This is, we have come to fullness in Christ. And just in case there's any misunderstanding, following Christ does look a certain way. (laughs) And the next chapter of Colossians speaks about how we are to live and how we are not to live. Christ is a particular person. He's God. We're not. So not letting religious people judge you doesn't just mean living however we want, like the quotes we read at the beginning said. It means staying closely connected to Christ, dying to ourselves and knowing we're alive in him. And actually, following Christ means that we are enabled to accomplish what religion couldn't. It's all about a person particular person, the man who died for our sins and rose to give us life. So let's set our minds and our hearts on things above where Christ is. We've come to fullness. And the second thing that, that Paul says, he says, when he's describing these people, he said they've lost connected, connection with the head from whom the whole body is built up with, he talks about the ligaments and the sinews. And this is a, this is a picture that Paul often uses of the body of Christ. And it's talking about us. 
So, again, this, this sermon might leave you thinking, okay, well, the best thing I have to do is just go lone wolf it by myself and be my own Christian so I don't hear any of this religious uh, junk. But um, it's actually the opposite of what's helpful. Because <laughs> self-made religion usually comes from the lone wolfers or from like a specific lobby group within the church. Paul says they get puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. So don't do your walk of faith by yourself or just those who think exactly like you. That can actually lead to you being a proponent of self-made religion. So connect first to Christ and then to his body. Don't let yourself be judged or disqualified by human ideas, but also don't abandon the body. Grow together. Let's, Let's grow together, love one another, and speak truth. And sometimes we'll need to speak against man-made religion in our midst. But lone wolfing isn't the solution. And then last, don't let anyone judge you. The objective reality is life in Christ. But subjective religious demands can, can distract us from that reality and weigh us down. And I'm, I'm one who always likes to hear an argument and weigh it carefully. But some things actually just don't deserve the time of day. Like I was reading this uh, passage that Jesus, in, Jesus says in, in Matthew 7. Um, and it's just after he said, don't judge anyone, which is interesting, that one side, don't judge anyone. And then, and then he, he comes to this uh, kind of maybe vague parable, but I think it's, it's fitting for what we're talking about today. He says, don't give dogs what is sacred. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Some of these things just don't deserve any of our attention. We just need to say, that's not of Christ. I am in Christ. I have come to fullness. And I'm not going to give them what's sacred. I'm not going to throw my pearls to them because they could trample me. That's not worth it. We let ourselves be affected by these judgments. We belittle the fullness of Christ that we've been brought into. And then we return, and we're returning to the things that we died to. So we've come to fullness in Christ. Do you believe it? Yeah. It's hard to believe, though, sometimes, isn't it? It's hard to believe. I've said that we can become confident enough in who Christ is and in who we are in Christ to reject the religious judgments of people. How? By staying connected to the head by staying connected to the body, and by beginning to recognize and refuse the human-made religious judgments of people. When I say all that together, it sounds a little bit cyclical. <laughs> but, but, and it is a little bit. But the point is, let's just, let's just start. Let's just start. So often the reason our confidence in who we are in Christ is diminished is because we're already being tossed to and fro by winds and waves of teaching. So often we're uncertain of who Christ is because we're not following him, but are being swayed by the voice of people in the world. Often we have trouble taking stands against man-made religion because we've already let ourselves be judged by such religion. And often we don't have confidence in Christ because we're not just following him. So our religion, if you're still okay with calling it that, is all about Christ. It's all about following that person, that one particular person. He is the prize, and he is the one who calls us. A little while ago, uh, when I was leading worship up here, I, I quoted this passage that Jesus, that Jesus says, and I'd, I'd like to, to read it to us. Um, 
He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I said when I referenced that passage, I said, if the burden feels heavy, it's probably because we're trying to carry something else at the same time. Let's pray.